Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climate Consulting. Now, one of the main reasons that I started this podcast was to help share all of the great advice and expertise that leaders in our industry have, but that so rarely sees the light of day outside their own firms. As a former consultant, I think I can get away with saying this, and, and you'll probably agree with me, that our industry is terrible at sharing knowledge, insights, advice, expertise beyond our own proverbial four walls. We share so much of that great stuff in our own firms. We put so much effort into learning and development, but we share so little of it outside. And I'm a huge believer, it's partly, well, it's entirely why I run this podcast, about sharing anything that helps consultants, helps people like you climb the career ladder. And so when I heard this interview, I knew that I had to share it with you for Climbing Consulting. So today, you won't actually be hearing from me. Instead, you will be hearing from two former guests, Professor Joe Omani, who is the Professor of Consulting at Cardiff University, and Rob Garner, partner at Garwood Solutions. And you'll be listening to their conversation for Joe's brilliant podcast, Growth for Consultancies. 
This podcast comes off the back of Joe's new book, Growth, Building a Successful Consultancy in the Digital Age, and gives a research-backed perspective on how you can scale your own consulting business. The reason to share this particular conversation is because it talks about many topics that I know that you and many of my other listeners are interested in, and topics that I didn't get to cover with either guest in our original conversation for Climbing Consulting. So, what will they actually be talking about today? In this one, Joe and Rob go deep into the inner workings of consulting M&A and many of the elements that you need to think about when building, buying or selling a consulting firm, including what actually decides the value of a consulting business and how buyers and sellers think about the M&A process, common areas that Rob and his team at Garwood look for when assessing deals for their clients and how to preempt these if you're considering selling your consultancy, and the hidden benefits of automation that many consulting firms don't know about and why investing in a PSA solution may be just what your firm needs to help you get to the next level. Whether you're just building a business plan for your new firm or your new practice area or you're already on the journey towards scale and potentially an exit, you will find plenty of insider tips in today's conversation. So with that intro over, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation between Joe Amani and Rob Garner. Okay, so I am here with Robert Gardner, who is a partner and founder of Garwood Solutions, but has also founded and grown a couple of other successful consultancies prior to this and has an interesting background and is probably one of the foremost experts in the growth and merger and acquisition of consultancies. And so we've got the privilege of your company for the next uh, hour or so, Rob. So thank you very much. Pleasure. Now, Rob, you've been pretty successful in the whole growth area. And before we do a deep dive on some of your perhaps recommendations and lessons around growth and mergers and acquisitions, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of background, and I realize there's a few companies that you've been through over the years, a bit of background about how you got to where you are now, please. Yeah, of course, Joe. Thanks very much. Um, So very brief introduction. So early career in IT consultancy, having graduated with a master's in technology many years ago now. Pertinent career, I think, probably for this conversation starts in terms of joining KPMG in the mid-90s and then subsequently becoming a partner around 2000. And then from there, uh, stayed with KPMG for about four years post becoming a partner, during which time, obviously, KPMG Consulting was sold to Atos Origin, and I found myself as a partner in Atos KPMG. I decided that that wasn't where I was going to spend the rest of my career, and with another consulting partner left at that point in time, and we created a business called Avail Consulting, which was a startup. So two of us, no client, no staff, but we had been and raised a little bit of funding off the back of a, of a business plan that we'd written. So we did have a little bit of money in the bank. Roll forward sort of six years, we were 80, 90 staff. We were turning over the low teams of millions. We exited that business, selling it to the tribal group. My business partner left and I went on and joined the tribal group themselves and became managing director of their government division. So not only running my own company that I'd taken into the group, but running five or six other businesses that they'd already acquired within that that space. I stayed with Tribal for a couple of years post-acquisition of my own company. So we're now around 2011, at which point I stepped out of consulting for two years 
and actually became a trust chief exec in the NHS and ran two NHS organisations for people that are listening that are familiar with them. They were commissioning support organisations that were being set up as part of the Lansley reform at that point in time. I did that for a couple of years and then the phone rang and it was tribal asking me whether I'd be interested in returning, which I did. And I returned in 2013, initially as group managing director and then latterly as group chief exec, looking after what was by then a international software and services business in the education sector. So very much rooted in the software side of it and in student management systems for schools, colleges and universities. I did that for three or four years and then decided that I was going to actually pursue a kind of more plural life and step down from tribal in 2016. And since then, really have had a balance of two things. So a small portfolio of board positions, mostly in the professional services space. And I chair a couple of small businesses and I also sit on the board of a couple of others. But also in that journey, then founded Garwood Solutions, which is an advisor to the advisors business, as it were. So we focus on professional services as a marketplace and are quite inclusive and provide services and advice around kind of growth, operational efficiency and kind of M&A. And we're a small group of individuals in total with associates. We number about a dozen, but people with similar backgrounds to myself. Those people are trading off the basis of having led you know, reasonably large organisations and had fairly senior kind of roles within them. And that's really where Garwood sits. And over the last, we formed Garwood in 2018. And since 2018, we've worked with about 35, 40 companies in a range of scales from very small. So sort of, I suppose the smallest we've done is probably about two to three million turnover, right up to, you know, quite frankly, eye-watering numbers in terms of, of turnover and staff. But in staff, probably anything from kind of 2030 right through to to several thousand, in fact. Wow. Okay. And does the, excuse my ignorance here, does the reward scale for you, does the reward for you scale proportional to the size of the firm? Is it as a percentage or do you, is it a fee or how does that work? So strictly in Garwood, it's dependent on what we're doing. I mean, it's very much what we're doing. So it can be a large organisation and we're doing a small piece of work. It can be a small organisation. We scale our fees a little bit, but not greatly. Actually, it's very much based around the outcome an organisation is trying to achieve and what sort of level of support they want. We'll scale our input accordingly. So yes, if we're working, we're currently working actually with one of the big four and, you know, in that regard, then, yes, actually, the number of days that are consumed goes up because of the scale of the organisation. We would scale days, but not D, as it were. Sure. And just a quick couple of questions on Garwood. So do you act on both sides of the equation? So you help. I know you definitely help consultancies that are looking to grow and sell. But also, yeah. I presume there's, you know, the big four, for example, who would be looking for suitable buy. Yeah, we work both sides. So we work buy and sell side. So sell side, as you're quite rightly, helping organisations to both grow and actually set out their stall in the market Mm -hmm. and take those organisations to market. Yeah, so we do operational due diligence on the buy side. So working with organisations to seek to understand the kind of largely sort of operational and strategic capability of a target and do that for a range of organisations, but actually most notably for for private equity buyers, actually, we'll do those sorts of things. And then we also work with a small number of corporate buyers where we might be helping them a little bit more with sort of valuation and deal structure. 
Again, we're not trying to replace the sort of financial due diligence or the role of, a, of effectively the financial advisor or the corporate finance advisor. But I think what we bring to it is a range of experience of probably slightly more specific deal structures for professional services. There aren't many kind of corporate finance organizations that specialize in professional services and understand the market quite as well as we do from that point of view. We tend to then get involved with kind of corporate buyers that are are looking at the market, but want a little bit of kind of industry specific knowledge around kind of valuation and deal structure. So we can tend to do those things. Okay, great. So that leads me to ask, and we've kind of done a deep dive. I want to talk more also about, you know, some of your previous experiences. But as we're on, you know, that we're discussing the buy side, when you are acting as a buyer on behalf of a buyer, and someone, you know, they present this beautiful growth plan and strategy going forward, what are your best questions or what common areas of focus where perhaps there might be areas of concern, sort of uncovering areas where you might think, well, this sounds great on paper, but in practice, and you've mentioned the leadership team and whether they've got the capability. What else would you be looking at there? We tend to look at a range of things. So leadership team, absolutely. We'll look at the market context. So want to understand a little bit about the kind of addressable market. So if someone's claiming that, you know, we can grow this business from an X to a Y business, Mm. but we establish that actually why would make the market leader by some country mile or something. Okay. Well, hang on a minute, guys. Let's have a can we have a dollar for realism in this in terms of what you're achieving? So definitely look externally. So we validate it in terms of what's happening in the market, the size of the addressable market, and actually try and establish a little bit of not only the sort of size, but also what are the kind of current market drivers and what's happening externally in the market that that business operates in. Then I think what we're looking for is we're looking internally at the data to start to substantiate the kind of claim. So, you know, we want to look backwards, but we also want to look in detail at what's in their near to medium term sort of pipeline. How can they justify kind of growth curve in terms of what they're proposing? What we're really looking for is we're looking for you know, confidence that there's a market that could support that kind of level of growth confidence that there's the leadership that can execute that kind of growth, and then confidence from, you know, quite frankly, a kind of funnel and pipeline sales management point of view, yep. that there is the capacity both in terms of what's already in there and also in their kind of sales team, yep. however they arrange that. You appreciate that many professional services firms don't have a sales team as such, but their sort of sales carder, they've then got both the capability and also the kind of headroom to execute on the sorts of things they're looking at. We'll then look, you know, depending on levels of comfort, we'll then look at, you know, perhaps in a little bit more detail at some of the sort of service propositions, whether the value propositions have been tuned to that and actually are aligned. So, yes, a great market opportunity. There's a good leadership team. Sales have got headroom and they can deliver, but we don't have the product to take to market. You know, yeah. what does that look like? What's that value proposition piece? So we'll have a good look around all of that. Okay. Try and just establish whether an organization's kind of growth is a reasonable, overambitious, you know, in one or two instances, perhaps modest, too modest. It can go all ways. Nice to hear that happens sometimes. It does. Particularly in slightly smaller businesses, if I'm honest, you'll find from time to time, you'll find management teams that don't quite understand the value of what they've got and what okay. can be done with it in the market. And actually, our role then is to actually help them to kind of realize potentially it was sell side clearly, but help them realize that value. If we're you know buy side in that situation, we come across an organization like that, 
Well, then it's to help the buyer understand that there's an awful lot of headroom in this business and it could do quite a lot more. Okay, that's interesting. And you mentioned the sort of product and service side of it. Do you have the stuff to sell? And certainly from my perspective, and I presume from yours, what I'm seeing in the industry is sort of the pure play management consultancies with the traditional leverage model. Don't get me wrong, they're still there. But you're increasingly getting it mixed up a bit with software and other passive income services. And there's also a big push in the market, even when you're doing quite traditional consultancy, to productize things quite heavily, even if it is based on people rather than technology. Is that something that you encourage with firms? And if so, does it cause any challenges for firms? So let's imagine a typical leveraged consultancy based around people selling day rates and they're coming up to sale and they suddenly think, right, you know, we need to productize some of this and perhaps get some software in. Is that something that you generally encourage? And as I say, does it raise any issues? Lots of questions in there, Joe. Yes, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. Let me try and pick them off one at a time. So the advantage of the blended business model, it typically is that you're getting some form of annuity revenue stream, whatever that happens to be. Mm. And you've got confidence over that recurring revenue stream, which in a sales situation is fantastic because it gives a buyer confidence that there's a base level of revenue that's committed out over a longer period of time. That's going to help with evaluation and all of those kind of things. So that's good. Trying to create something that's not there, a little bit more difficult and actually a little bit artificial. And it doesn't always have to be technology. So my view is, look, actually, if there is something here that naturally lends itself to creating a productized, but an annuity revenue more than product, yes, let's do it because actually that's going to help. I think the product point of view is about, from my point of view, it's about kind of cost of sale, clarity of vision. Actually, And I'm, I suppose, naturally inclined to say Mm. I quite like framework the way things work. So actually, it's not necessarily a strict methodology from A to Z. But actually, we have a framework here that we're taking to market that sits behind our product. We can articulate that framework. We can give a client confidence that we, A, have done it before. B, we've got all of the kind of tools that we require to do it. And actually, what we're not doing is kind of completely bespoking a solution there and then for the client. What you do need to do in those circumstances, and why I like the word sort of framework as opposed to methodology, is you need to demonstrate that you can apply that framework, you can synthesize it to their situation mm-hmm. and their circumstance. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is something that you know, I do think adds value. You know, organizations that I see, though, that are doing you know, very well in the kind of current climate have got a re- pretty sort of strong focus, though. And I think that, so I think you've got three separate things here. You've got something which is about annuity revenue. You've got something which is about kind of product frameworks. And you've got something which is about focus. And I think, you know, the organizations that I see that succeed well are those organizations that are pretty strongly focused and understand really their strengths and weaknesses. The day of the kind of jack of all trades management consultant, I would like to think is behind us. You know, I think I'm sure it does still exist. Mm. But, but that's not where I would take an organization. So I would take an organization almost in reverse order in those things. So I would take an organization through a very clearly defined process about focusing that organization in terms of, I hate yeah. USP or whatever, but it's a terrible phrase. But, but focusing down on those things where they have you know, real value add for a client and they can articulate what that value add for a client is. So 
let's get some focus. Behind that focus, let's get some clear frameworks for how we do things. And if some of those things we can then drive into annuity structures and we can sell on a recurring revenue basis, all the better kind of thing. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And I guess this is a related but more general question. I realize many companies will come to you at an early stage looking to sell perhaps in a couple of years' time. What, other than the leadership team, which I realize is a common challenge, but there's not much you can do about it if you are that person, other than, you know, maybe a bit of training. Go on, you were going to say something then. Yeah, no, well, I think clearly the leadership team is something we will look at in that circumstance. And I can think of a a situation with a client we've worked with relatively recently where actually part of the recommendation was helping them to build out their leadership team. Because actually often what happens is too much of it sits on the shoulders of the founder in that situation. Any buyer knows that that founder is selling a reason. And normally that reason has things like, I want to have other life choices and do other things over time. And perhaps even retirement comes into the phraseology and all of those sorts of things. So actually what we've done is we'll work with organizations to make sure that they've got a leadership team in place that's about post-deal, not just pre-deal. And that therefore any buyer uh, can see that actually they're buying into a strong and capable leadership team to take the organization forward. And you don't get that kind of horrible situation, which you know, we've all probably seen in the past, where you know, an organization's acquired, the leadership team effectively start to depart from almost day one or certainly day one post earnout. And actually, there isn't a long term and mature leadership team that can take the organization forward. So I do think there is things you can do with the leadership team. I take your point, and I think where you were heading, which is, you know, if you're representing your founder, there's not a lot you can do about the founder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you have to work yes. with the founder. But actually, you can very, very successfully work around the founder in terms of putting those you know, complementary and yep. perhaps slightly longer term kind of positions in place. That's a really good point. Thank you. Aside from the leadership, what are the most common challenges that you see that smaller organizations face in getting to the point where they are presentable? So I think split that into a couple of different categories. So one category tends to be kind of maturity of sort of back office operation. And we often end up doing a lot of work with organizations around that. So helping them with a bit of process, a bit of systems. You know, small organizations that are on a growth curve with a view to an exit, you know, probably up to that point that we've got engaged. Everybody knows everybody, pretty much everybody knows what everybody's doing. You know, the founder, owner, leader of that organization probably has got quite a lot of the funnel and pipeline in their head. You know, they've got a finance team or person that's helping them once a month with a hopefully a set of management accounts, but maybe not even once a month. I mean, we've seen once a quarter, you know. But actually, what we'll come in and do is help mature that, both to help them secure the growth, but actually also to help them secure the confidence of a buyer downstream. Mm. That's a really well-run organization. They're on top of their numbers. They know exactly where they are. And so we'll help organizations, as I said, with a bit of process around it. And we'll help organizations with the systems that can drive the kind of MI around it and help them with the specification of some of that MI. Up to a certain size, and we'll talk about inflection points, you know, up to 10 people, you probably carry most of it in your head. You Mm, don't mm. need a lot, you know, 10 to 20 people, you need to formalize a bit, you know, 20 to 50, you need to formalize a bit more, 50 plus. It's about making sure you're always ahead of that curve, 
sure. not chasing that curve. Yep. So if we think that in the next six months we're going to reach 50 staff and we're going to need to formalise things, well, mm. let's do them now. And then when we get to 50 staff, we're kind of growing into it, not suddenly we've reached a critical, yep. we need to very quickly change things. So operations is a key point in that. It, it, it strikes me these days especially that professional service automation stuff. In fact, we had a conversation about this not so long ago, but professional service automation software is now so cheap and very often is charged by the head. There's very little to be lost in getting involved with some of that quite early on. No, certainly. I wouldn't say a whole PSA, but there are certainly kind of point solutions for aspects of what a PSA can do. Yeah. Where you're talking about, you know, $5 a head, you know, for me personally, it's a kind of no brainer at mm. that level and get some of those basic building blocks in place. You're probably talking about an integrated PSA. You're probably more into the sort of $20 a month or something like oh. that for an entry level PSA per head. But actually, you know, that, that itself can pay huge dividends. Mm. When I was founded and growing my own business, PSAs weren't around. You know, I'd have loved one, quite frankly. But we built the kind of point solutions for the three key elements that I think you get in a PSA. So your funnel and the pipeline management, your opportunity management, your resource management, and then actually your kind of project financial management mm. yep. and separating project financials from financials. You know, and we built point solutions for all of those. And the idea that a PSA that subsequently came along and wrapped them all into one integrated solution was fabulous. And I'd have loved to have had it at the time. Yeah, it would have been fantastic. Saved you a lot of work. It would have saved us an awful lot of work and, quite frankly, given us a lot better solution as well. Yep. But yep. It would have saved us a huge amount of work, yeah. Well, I interrupted. You said, number one, you said sort of back office numbers yeah, so, and visibility. So you know, leadership, absolutely. Back office, absolutely. Kind of operational management. And then I think you go into kind of two areas. So I think one of which is around sales. So what is your sales management approach? What is your sales process? What is your everything from, you know, how do you market this organization? What routes do you secure new opportunities through right through to, well, who's doing it and what's their focus and how are they remunerated and all of those sorts of things. So we'll look at that side of it. And then on sort of delivery. What we tend to look at and what I tend to look at there, I'm never going to tell another consultant how to kind of deliver. That's not my job in that. Yeah. You know, they know their kind of products, their delivery model far better than I would ever know it. But what I can help them with is the sort of what I think of as being the sort of quality assurance around it. You know, how do you maintain and build quality in what you're doing? How do you not have the client shocks, as it were? And so, therefore, I'll talk about what I would think about as being what I would refer to as a sort of delivery assurance framework. Yep. So how do you get, you know, for smaller projects, how do you get people to do kind of peer reviews of their project, of the whole project, of the risk structure for it, whatever it happens to be? And then actually, how do you get from peer review to kind of concept of a kind of manager review right through to actually, if it's a very big project and really important, We'll bring in someone externally to review the delivery mm. and help us to kind of manage the quality. Mm. And I think that sort of quality assurance framework around consulting delivery in some organizations, incredibly well established, actually in smaller organizations, less so. Okay, thank you. That's brilliant. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about your previous life was that you've been, Garwood aside, you've been, you know, very successful and you've been partnering to all different organizations and yeah. you know the work with the tribal. 
Now, talking to you, you have, and talking to you in the past, I like the way you logically break down problems. Just in this conversation, two or three times you've said, well, let me break down a bit. Let's be clear on what we're talking about here. And I can see that that's quite something I try and encourage in my students. Which is ironic because I'm not very good at it myself. My, my, as my <laughs> wife sure tells me, <laughs> as my wife tells me often, my head's a mess and I need to be I'm clear. Sure. Aside from that, what's enabled you? You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, luck played a part and being in the right place at the right time. Aside from all of that, what of personal skills have allowed you to achieve the success that you have in your career? Well, great question. Um, probably one for reflection. I think I'm going to break that down. But I'll break it down in time sequence. So the first time, you know, my career really started to change when I joined KPMG in, as I said, in the mid 90s, became a partner in 2000. And my partner case was based around the growth of a new market for for KPMG. So I'd gone in with to KPMG with some background and some prior experience in working around the sort of criminal justice sector as a marketplace and brought that with me, specifically, actually, within criminal justice policing, actually. Okay, and I quite, that quite specific. No, no, very specific, very, very specific. And I've done quite a lot of work within the sector. Within KPMG, I got the space to expand that. So we went from policing to criminal justice. We went from criminal justice to a broader definition, which then started to include things like national security. Okay. Um, quite a logical sequence of how you get from one to the other. They're all partners in the true sense of the word in mm. terms of, of partners. But actually, I started to work with a broader base of organizations and what I had to say and what KPMG as a firm at the time had to offer kind of resonated with those clients. And I, you know, my partner case was growing what was a, a sector in KPMG from something that was measured in the you know, hundreds of thousands to something that was measured in the millions. You know, and I didn't do that on my own. I wouldn't claim that responsibility, but I certainly led a lot of it. And I set out quite a lot of the sort of framework for that that was going to be and, and yep. how we were going to execute it. So that was my first kind of experience of growth. And I think that's where I really started to learn about sales and sales management. You know, I'd come from a smaller consulting organization where I didn't really have that responsibility. I was very much a delivery consultant, but actually arriving in the big four, you know, I kind of started to understand my responsibilities were much broader and how I was going to do that. And I suppose I had some personal interest and skills that lent me much more towards the sort of sales side of it than, say, the delivery leadership side of it. I was never going to be the best program manager in KPMG. That wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. There were far, far better able colleagues than myself. I think what I'm saying in all of that in terms of sort of personal attribute is actually a kind of really starting to work out in that KPMG and understand actually what I was good at and what I wasn't good at and actually start a little bit of kind of almost emotional intelligence in terms of, you know, just really, you know, personally analyzing, you know, what I was good at, what I got personal kind of reward out of. Mm you know, actually, therefore, how I wanted to kind of start to steer my career. And I definitely wanted to start to steer my career much more into sales is not the right word, because I wouldn't ever describe myself as a salesman. And I don't think any of my colleagues would either. But actually, in terms of that kind of client management piece, you know, take an organization from being a single engagement to having you know, potentially multiple engagements over a longer period of time, and how you kind of create an account that did really interest yes. me. And that was something I really learned and crafted at KPMG. 
when I then left KPMG sort of via Atos, but set up my own business with, as I said, one other ex-KPMG partner, you know, brought all of that learning into that business. So early on, back to something I said half an hour or so ago in this conversation, first off, you know, really strong focus around what we were going to do. So mm. setting out clarity around our value propositions and our accounts. So we defined literally in the first few months of, of having the business, very little work. We were doing a couple of pieces of work, but still not recruited anybody, but we had secured our first couple of pieces of work. Ironically, I, I sold a piece which my business partner went and delivered, and he sold a piece that I went and delivered. Uh-huh. And it worked perfectly, yeah. kind of thing, you know. But we hadn't really done much more than that by way of, I suppose, market delivery. Mm-hmm. What we did was we set out a framework of a four-by-four four matrix, which said, these are the four services. These are our four value propositions. And these are the four markets that we want to work in. Here's our four by four matrix. Here are our 16 boxes. <coughs> our challenge over the next 10 years is to turn every one of those green. You know, green in terms of you know, sales, revenue, staff utilization, all of those sorts of things. And of course, year one, hardly any of them are green. They were nearly all red. But actually, year on year, really, our business model was about how did we turn that matrix from red to green or I presume there was coherence, logical coherence between the different boxes. There was, exactly that. So we set out a business that had four solution areas. So we had a strategy and business planning, a supply chain optimization, a performance improvement, and an IT advisory. Mm. And we set out four markets, home affairs, foreign affairs, and education. So we were absolutely deeply in the public sector, and we were very clear about what we were taking to the public sector. And it was then about which of these gained most traction you know early on and how could we build out from those kind of those initial kind of gains yeah and that logical sort of structured way of thinking and planning which you bring to your clients now as well as your own business i'm guessing that's carried through to garwood it has yes we have interestingly we had a garwood partners meeting only a week ago and we've always had a good clarity around our kind of service propositions. So we will talk internally about having kind of five or six service lines, but we'll really talk to clients about having three kind of solutions. Mm-hmm. It's about growth, it's about operational improvement, and it's about mergers and acquisitions. There are kind of solutions. Yeah, we'll talk about if you want to accelerate growth, improve operational efficiency, realize value, they're the things we're interested in talking about. Behind the scenes, there are a few other things that we can do. But they're all in support of those three things. Yep. What we've only ever done today is to say we work in professional services. But actually, professional services is a very broad market in its own right. And what we're just starting the process of doing, literally through the kind of next quarter, is being a little bit more definitive about what do we mean by professional services mm. and actually where are strengths within it. And therefore, where can we, quite frankly, offer better value? Yeah, you know, and I think that's both in terms of subsectors to professional services. Mm. So, yes, course, management consulting, but you know, do you class? And I would, but do you class kind of you know the tech side in there? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Where do we get to with kind of I don't know lawyers and accountants? Where do we get to and keep going because there are looking hundreds of them. In, yes, of course, yes. But we need to understand where we play really strongly and you know where we've got good track record. So. We're starting to build out that kind of framework for ourselves in Garwood. We've to date, and we've only been trading for three years, but to date, we've focused very much on the value proposition side of it, the solution definition side of it, 
now we're starting to think a little bit more about the market definition side of it. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. It's interesting that you managed to combine the entrepreneurial skills with also the skills that you need with a larger organization. And your CV shows that. But it's something I see quite a lot with my clients. And my clients are obviously further down the, you know, they're a lot smaller than yours. But very often you have the entrepreneur. Now, being a, you know, might be, take yourself, for example, you know, they've got this proposition around, you know, consulting firm growth, professional service firm growth. But then it would be quite easy and tempting to start thinking, well, you know, the, um, the recruitment side of it, you know, executive team recruitment, we could do a yep. bit of that. And, you know, internationalization, we could do a bit of yep. that. And how do you decide what not to do? It's difficult because you're talking about known unknowns, you know, you, oh. in which you don't know how big the market is for these things. No, you don't. And you know, whilst I portray that sort of journey at Avail of being very much focused around that kind of four by four matrix, and actually, it was pretty constant throughout the whole five, six years of the growth of that business. You know, there were times, and every year, we would certainly look at the market side of it and say, you know, actually, are one or two of these markets reaching kind of maturity? Can we do more in them? Do we need to, therefore, supplement them and bring a new market? And I remember spending quite a lot of time and, quite frankly, quite a lot of money working out whether we were going to kind of enter defense or not, and then proving that we weren't. In fact, actually, that was the right thing for us to do. But so we did look at that. Markets can be a little bit cyclical from that point of view in terms of you know, the level of work that's available within them, particularly in that instance where you're being pretty narrow. Quite. So that tends to be the part that certainly I would think of you know, on an annual basis. Certainly, you know, the value proposition piece, I think that's something that's probably on more like a five-year cycle or something like that. that you need mm. to be, you know, Yes, it's constant. But actually, you look at your refresh over a much longer cycle than perhaps you look at your client refresh over. There's yep. different timescales, but you've got to look at them. But the focus down on them is, is the part that you know, I find really key in terms of actually you know, driving us forward and using that framework to set the metrics for the business. So mm. if I use Avail again as the example, you know, we set all of our targets in that 16 box or those 16 boxes, that four by four. Yep. So revenue targets, we set sales targets, we set utilization targets. We defined effectively almost a kind of solution market strategy for every solution market intercept. Yep. Yep. And that's how we got the focus and that's how we drove the business. It's a fair bit of work, isn't it? I mean, it's something that certainly smaller firms struggle with. You know this better than anyone in that, you know, you're desperate to get the money through the door. And that also means selling and delivering. And then you've got the business. Absolutely. But I think one or two organizations, there is an expression, which is about, you know, are you working on or are you working in? Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, for good reasons that I understand, but actually too many smaller organizations spend too much time working in and not enough time working on. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And you have to find the time to work on the business. Yes. And I think, yeah, that's something that we did well, if I'm honest, in terms of my kind of, certainly my prior example, in terms of Avail. Martin and I, that were the two founders, after the first six months, we were setting our utilization targets in reverse, as in, you shall not exceed. Yeah, know, okay, yeah. Because it's about preserving the time yeah. to work on the business. And if you're not working on the business, then actually, it doesn't matter how good your delivery is, and doesn't matter how good your sales are. Mm actually you're spending all of your time delivering, then you're not going to grow the business. You have to create the time and you have to create the capacity for others to grow in that circumstance. 
you know, I think use of veil again, we did literally set maximum utilization targets. So our maximum utilization targets were basically 40%. As the two founders, we will never exceed 40% in the market. And that was clear. We need to preserve the time for us to run the business. Mm. Yeah, aside from that, we recruited well. And yeah. I think mm. that's a challenge that many organizations struggle with. And I think when I say recruited well, I mean recruited future leaders saw our responsibility as creating space for them to lead the business, not for us to lead it. So Avail was never about myself and my business partner. Avail always, as a company, came first. Lots of smaller organizations uh, fail to get past one or two of the early inflection points because the organization is too much about the leaders and not yeah. about the organization in its own right. Yes, definitely. It's something I see a lot, of, certainly at my end of the market. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you get a very strong leader who doesn't want any competition. I agree. No, no, we, we, see them as well. we absolutely see them as well. And I would absolutely agree. And you can see that those organizations where that founder leader, for reasons that are perfectly valid, I'm not criticizing them for doing mm. it, but you know, they do want the business to be about them. It is a platform for them as much yes, as it. Yes. You see them oscillate often between sort of the numbers will be specific to the organization. But I don't know, I can think of organizations that oscillate in size between sort of 15 and 25 staff. And you know, they never get above 25 staff. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's actually you know, partly almost the founder's preference is, yeah, I don't want to get past 25 yep. staff. I, and it sounds slightly perverse, but that's a perfectly valid way of running it and perfectly valid business model if that's what you want to do. Yes, I think the trouble is, is when it's not what you want to do, but you can't overcome that thing in your head. I've worked with a couple of companies that get to a certain size and think, actually, we want to keep it small. And that's great. What's really tricky is when you find a founder who wants to grow to 100, 200, but they don't want to delegate and they want to tell people what to do. Correct. There aren't the hours in the day to do that when you start to get to that size. <laughs> and actually, you can't develop a, a framework to manage that. I go back to my pre-partner days in KPMG. So we're now talking late 90s. And the partner that I then worked for in one of my performance reviews said, it's okay to take risks. It's not okay to take uncontrolled risks. Your responsibility mm. as a leader is to put the control mechanism in place. I like that. That's sensible. And it stuck with me. And that's been part of my philosophy, which is, you know, we don't let people run loose, as it mm. were. Yeah, that's irresponsible. But actually, what you have got to do is you've got to give people room, and then you've got to create the frameworks that help them to succeed in that room. And some of that is about the control mechanisms that you put in place. And, you know, control mechanism for everything from we're going to have a half an hour a day, you know, where we'll just chat through what's happening to yep. I need to spend an hour with you once a fortnight or whatever yes, it happens yes. to be. You know, it doesn't really matter. But the point is that you've got visibility of the data, you've got sight of the client, but actually you're giving people space to execute in. Brilliant. Sadly, a common I, challenge. I agree. And, and I do think that there are people that don't want to grow beyond a certain size. And you know, one of the interesting conversations I have with people is that we'll destroy our culture and values. Our culture and values are very special to us. And I would fully support that. I, I'm knocking that conceptually. What I do often knock, though, is if we get above, pick a number, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever the number is, it'll all change. Yeah. And my experience is, no, it doesn't all change. My experience is you can manage a strong culture and a strong set of values and grow an organization 
not aggressively, but mm. certainly you can grow it strongly. You can grow it. Mm. You don't have to be shy in that respect. And you know those things, they're not in conflict with each other. I think so often people, when they're looking at growth, particularly from smaller business structures, will think that basically growth and kind of culture are almost going to go in opposite directions. And if I seed on one, I'll destroy the other. And actually, I don't believe that. I mean, I, not only do I not believe it, I, yeah, I've never done it kind of thing. Mm. You know. Once you float, it it seems to me to make a difference because of the the amount of reporting and the ownership structures and things. That seems to be be a major inflection point when it comes to culture sometimes. I wouldn't disagree with you at all. I think I would just characterise it slightly differently. I think it's when you take external investment. Yeah, sure. It doesn't have to be a float. It's at any point in that growth. If you've got a third party that's now in this kind of journey, you've got Mm. your founders, you've got the kind of the family culture, whatever it is that's making it special and all of that. Mm. You've got your staff, as it were. If you now add effectively an investor, that can change things. I agree with that. Mm. And that itself needs kind of executing, navigating. Sure. Yeah. Quite carefully. But, But I think. Yes, so your point I would agree with, but characterised slightly differently. Yeah, sure, brilliant. Bob, listen, I have taken up uh, a lot of your time this morning, and so your insights are are really appreciated, and you're an inspiration, not just for, you know, some of my clients in terms of consultancy, but also in terms of my students at the university who want to go on and, you know, maybe they don't want to start up themselves, they want to go into KPMG or whatever. Well, I would genuinely say I have enjoyed equally my time in kind of, you know, KPMG is an example of the big four, you know, starting and then growing my own company and then subsequently running a listed company. They've all had different challenges, but they've all had, you know, huge enjoyment factors to them, you know, um, and personal reward. I think probably this sort of satisfaction about the kind of reasonably rapid growth of your own organization is hard. But nevertheless, the other two have been immensely enjoyable. It's a bit like children, isn't it? You've got this satisfaction in seeing them get bigger, but you just worry a little bit more because it's further to fall. (laughs) Well, yes, there is a bit of that. Bob, thank you very much. Real pleasure. Good to talk to you, Joe. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.